Hi, this is Paul Lee with the Divided Families podcast, and what you just listened to was actually recorded directly from the Marshall Islands by our guest on this episode, Tyler Rivera. Now, I have to admit, before listening to this conversation between Eugene and Tyler, I knew basically nothing about the Marshall Islands. And as Eugene mentions in this episode, the case of the Marshall Islands is not your typical story of family separation through conflict or through war. That being said, I was really struck by just how much this story of displacement through climate change resonated with me from stories of how important this value of family is in in the Marshallese community, especially in places like Arkansas in the U.S., or the complex geopolitics of the relationship with the Marshall Islands of China to Taiwan. I hope you can join us in learning about this important issue and also connecting the dots from this issue to other stories of family separation. So without further ado, here's a conversation between Eugene and Tyler. to another episode of the Divided Families podcast. I have here with me Tyler Rivera. He just came back from the Marshall Islands after doing a brief project there. He's also a close high school friend, so this might be not as formal of a conversation (laughs) as other interviews. Um, But thank you so much for being here, especially given jet lag, slight sickness, Mm. and also very few days where our schedule overlapped for this. So thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. We'll see how this conversation um, unfolds. Uh, Before we go into anything, I did want to mention that this is the story of the Marshall Islands is not a typical family separation story, given that families are not strictly like forcibly separated as they are at the U.S.-Mexico border, for example. Um, But as I was researching and getting ready for this uh, interview, I kind of realized that it really does get to the core or like essence of family separation in some sense, because and this is how I view it, because I'm not sure. I mean, I didn't go to the Marshall Islands, but um, as far as I understand it, the situation of the Marshall Islands is kind of the erasure or potential erasure of a home. And kind of when you face the erasure of your home, you kind of lose what makes your family like, I don't know, what allows a family to stay together. Mm. So for me, that's kind of how I saw it. And I think that a lot of the things that we're going to talk about will resonate with a lot of the other stories of family separation, given that they're facing an external kind of historical circumstance, external circumstance mm-hmm. that they have no control over. And also, given that a lot of the Marshallese people are moving to the United States due to this forced displacement, they're going to face the same kinds of internal family divisions, generational divisions and the like. So I think that it's not the typical family separation story, but I think that it's going to be very, very um, insightful and helpful for other conversations. So we can kind of start. The first question that we usually ask our guests is, how did you kind of get inspired to go to the Marshall Islands? What's the story of how you decided to go? Also, where are the Marshall Islands? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, That is a question that I was asking myself when I I first found myself applying for the postgraduate fellowship that brought me to the Marshall Islands. When I was researching international locations, because that was the requirement of my grant that I, that I be located outside of the United States, um, I knew that I wanted to be somewhere that was on the front lines of climate change. Uh, and there are, there are many locations that fall into that bucket, but perhaps none more so than small island states like the Marshall Islands, Vanuatu, Kiribati, and the Maldives that are low-lying and really face a threat unlike any other in terms of the existence of their home, of their culture, 
of a very, as you said, erasure of their way of life. So I knew that I wanted to go somewhere similar to the Marshall Islands. And when doing some research on like, the history um, and politics of these small island states, I found the Marshall Islands to be particularly interesting given its geopolitical context in World War II as one of the like, focal points of the Pacific theater, given its history with um, nuclearization in the Cold War, and then now its continuing circumstances as it relates to climate change. So like as a as a student of geography, I found it Oh, yeah, do you think you can go a little bit into your background about what was the fellowship that you got to go to the Marshall Islands and also Sure. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit about your mm-hmm. academic background. I so, guess. I studied geography at Dartmouth, um human geography, um with a focus on international development. I'm not working per se in, in like a particularly related or adjacent field at this moment. But I think I still have a long-term interest intellectually uh, with human migration and with why, why people are in the places that they are, particularly as a son of an immigrant myself. So um, I studied geography, and three years later, I found myself applying for the fellowship that I would go on to receive from Dartmouth. The fellowship itself is an international travel fellowship. So you're expected to base yourself outside of the United States for um, a short period of time. It could be three months. It could be a year. Um, You receive a set amount of money and you're essentially given the freedom to spend it how you would like in pursuit of the kinds of experiences that you think will be fulfilling to you in your career. Um, The only other requirement of the grant is that it is intended for people who are interested in pursuing architecture, architectural history, or urban planning. And I'm currently in the process of applying to graduate school in urban planning, which is why I was able to qualify for the grant. So I found out, I I applied for the grant in February of this year, 2019, and I found out I received it in May, and then I was in the Marshall Islands by September. And did you also get to, did you already explain where it is? No. That was my first reaction. Uh, obviously, I was very happy for you to get the grant, but I was also like, where is that? <laughs> I definitely heard of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a small set of atoll islands, which are essentially like rings of coral reef. It's not the traditional kind of island you're probably picturing. And the chain of islands is located about halfway between Australia and Hawaii. So it's just above the equator. It's technically in the North Pacific. That's what Marshallese people consider themselves to be, like a part of the North Pacific. For us, geographically, we would probably consider it the quote-unquote South Pacific. But I found that uh, there are very big cultural differences as well as like geological and economic um, differences between Islands like the Marshall Islands, the Marianas Islands, um, Hawaii, that are all a part of the North Pacific, and then islands that are in the South Pacific too, like Fiji. And could you also talk a little bit about the governing structure? Like, what is the Marshall Islands' relationship to the U.S.? Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't have like a. I I wouldn't consider myself an expert on this by any means. Um, You know, in all fairness, I was only there for three months, so I can speak to my three months of knowledge and experience as a non-expert. 
But um, I think the, the particular relationship of the Marshall Islands to the United States was one of the factors that drew me because of the, the linkages that bind the Marshall Islands history and future fate to the United States in, in many different regards. But the Marshall Islands were, as I mentioned before, um, they were like a really key territory to be held during World War II because of their strategic position within the Pacific as, as a refueling point for planes, um, for the respective air forces, um, and as a stopping point for, for navies mm-hmm. as they're crossing the Pacific theater. So there was a big strategic interest on the part of Germany, which captured the Marshall Islands and held them for a certain period of time. I don't know how long. But the history of German occupation is visceral in the Marshall Islands in the surname structure of families. I found it fascinating that so many families in the Marshall Islands continue to have German surnames to this day, including the president of the Marshall Islands, currently Hilda Heine, a very German name, probably not what you would be anticipating for a Marshallese president. Um, Following German occupation, there was a period of Japanese occupation, and I believe that lasted for a number of years um, during World War II. Were there any uh, Japanese last names? Yes, there are many, many German la- uh, and Japanese last names, first and last names. Um, and a lot of people have a very close connection to their Japanese heritage. So they didn't just adopt these last names or anything, it's that they are actually of German or Japanese descent. Yes. Are there also like, I don't know, quote unquote, pure Marshallese people? Um, or are they all kind of mixed ethnicity? Uh, I, I, I'm not entirely certain, honestly. Um, the history of occupation is much more recent than somewhere like Kauai, where it's much more difficult to find people of pure indigenous um, ancestry. Mm-hmm. So I, I would venture to say that particularly on some of the less populated, as they refer to them, outer mm-hmm. islands, where there's less in and out migration, you probably find a lot more people of pure Marshallese indigenous ancestry than you would find in somewhere like Madura, where I was located, where there is a lot of racial mixing. There are a lot of immigrants, both Marshallese and non-Marshallese, um, and where people are migrating much more frequently, which lends itself to, to more like interracial mixing mm-hmm. than, than you would find in the outer islands. But as far as the culture goes, are they, you know, like, is there a distinction between different, you know, mixed um, ancestry versus pure Marsh, or is everybody just kind of considered, you know, one giant family. Yeah, I actually found that very fascinating when I was there. You will encounter people who at first glance would not appear to be Marshallese. A lot of them will look Japanese. Some of them will look white. Many people look mixed. And I was shocked when I found that one of the senators, his name's Sherwood Tibbin, And I was fortunate to be in the Marshall Islands when an election cycle was taking place. So um, there was a lot of campaigning taking place during my time in the Marshall Islands. And this person who was running for a Senate seat, Sherwood, he looked white, uh, like as a person from the United States. 
he looked white to me. And I was asking a Marshallese coworker of mine whether or not it was weird that someone who's white is running for elected office in the Marshall Islands. Um, it's not unheard of. There are actually like a number of people who are, would be white passing mm-hmm. who are technically Marshallese. And, and she enlightened me that he is Marshallese. And like, was he born in the Marshall Islands? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's born in the Marshall Islands. His family is Marshallese. Mm-hmm. Um, and they descend from a line of missionaries from Germany mm-hmm. who first came to the Marshall Islands in the 1800s. And those were actually the very first non-Marshallese settlers to occupy any territory in the Marshall Islands were, were missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe German missionaries were the first. So he has a very long lineage of a family in the Marshall Islands. But what we consider in the United States, I mean, to be white, likely, but um, as far as my Marshallese coworkers were concerned, he was Marshallese. Mm -hmm. And I guess one question that comes out of that before we go into some history, I guess, is what character, like what gives you Marshallese, like authenticity, I guess? Is it the fact that he was born there or is it like based on community works or like how do you, I mean, if you can't distinguish a Marshallese person based on appearance, then how do you quantify that? Or how do you know that somebody is Marshallese, you know? Yeah, there's one really clear way that I learned uh, when I was in the Marshall Islands is uh, based on someone's matrilineal lineage. Mm -hmm. The Marshallese have a matrilineal family structure and you are given your mother's clan. Mm Mm-hmm based on her clan that she was given by her mother. So families are organized into these like larger superstructures uh, of clans, and they don't all necessarily share the same last name. So it's not as easy to identify people who are part of the same clan, but they all share the same Joey is the Marshallese term for their clan. It's their Joey. And if you ask someone what their Joey is, they'll tell you. Um, if they have one, and they'll tell you usually a story that's associated with their Joey. And that kind of denotes whether or not someone is part of a Marshallese, like, dynastic family, if you will. Mm-hmm. What kind of examples of story? Well, do you know any examples of stories that would come with the name? I can remember one. Um, sh- I can't remember the Joey. It's It's a Marshallese word. But I was interviewing someone, and they told me the story of how their family members moved from one island to another island. And there were warriors who like basically stood guard in the ocean and protected their home island from attack from neighboring islands or from other territories or people. And so their joey is associated with this like history of warriors who protect their home island. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating to me as I get into that. And the reason I kind of dug through the family details, family structure, I guess, is maybe this is jumping too far ahead, but we're going to talk about like what's next for the Marshallese people right after these mm-hmm. islands face climate change, the effects of climate change. But it's really interesting if the family structure is not based I mean, it's not based in like a single point of origin, right? So that's kind of interesting in terms of how does that give them, I don't know, adaptability to survive outside of the islands? Or do you think that the islands are so... I mean, I think I've also read that the islands are so crucial to their sense of identity and like who they are as a people, but also it seems like the Marshallese people are already kind of 
displaced people, you know, like originally kind of, at least that's the sense that I get. So, yeah, um, I don't know if it grants them a certain level of additional adaptability relative to any other cultures. I would say that the Marshallese already have this history of migration that we can talk about further as it relates to um, the Compact of Free Association and Marshallese people moving to the United States and and having these like really long distance family ties connecting people who are living very remotely but still have a very intimate and and personal sense of connection to the islands and to their joey to their clan and and their familial lineage so perhaps the family structure in a way does lend itself in that they have these very large these large families that are oftentimes dispersed within the marshall islands from one island to another and then across continents between the Pacific and the continental United States. So maybe they are more resilient when it comes to those kinds of family ties. Yeah, well, so I think we can go into a little bit about the history of the Marshall Islands, and then you can correct me or add things as I go through. So um, for those who don't know, between 1946 and 1958, other than climate change, the huge thing is that the U.S. held nuclear tests on the Bikini Atoll, Atoll, how do you Mm -hmm. pronounce that? Yeah, Adol. Adol. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was always curious about that. Um, but they held a whole bunch of nuclear tests there. Um, I think it's about over 60 total, and the strongest was a thousand times stronger than the bomb in Hiroshima. Do you want to add anything about that, or should I just continue going? Yeah. Down? One thing that I learned while there is that it wasn't just the B- Bikini Atoll that was affected by the test. Another atoll, um, Anawatak, was also impacted by the testing and the fallout from the testing also impacted atolls that were like physically very distant from the test sites but were downwind from the testing mm-hmm. and people on those atolls will, were also impacted by the effects of of the testing and of exposure to radiation mm-hmm. and what did the US do to prepare for the effects of this, you know, like, did they kind of alert people ahead of time or what was kind of the notification? Yeah. Uh, it seems like they didn't really have a choice. No, there there was very little voluntary migration taking place at that time. They were very much displaced. Essentially, I, I believe the U.S. military came in and said, we're going to conduct these tests. We're going to remove you from the islands. But that was exclusively on Bikini and Inuatak, where the test sites were taking place. The other atoll that I alluded to that was exposed to radiation was not um, evacuated Mm. in advance of the testing taking place. And they received a significant amount of exposure to radiation once the tests were, were undergoing. So you have like this group of people who were moved out of their islands um, once the tests were taking place. When the tests were completed, they were told that it was safe for them to return, despite the United States knowing that it was unsafe for them to return. That was intentional on the part of military scientists who wanted to essentially test what the implications of a people moving back to an irradiated land would be. They were pretty quickly re-evacuated once people started becoming ill um, and once like people started having deformities in their children etc and they weren't allowed 
to return after that. Is that also, it's like the legal implications of that, is that also all covered under the Compact of Free Association? And maybe this is jumping too far ahead, but it seems like the Compact of Free Association, which we'll talk about in just a second, but it seems like that kind of wiped this slate. So the Marshallese received a special agreement from the United States, specifically the people of Bikini, Kili, and Inuatak. They're like part of a collective of islands that are a part of a trust mm-hmm. of, of funds that the United States endowed to essentially support the survivors of the, te- the nuclear testing. I I can't speak to the amount of the funds. I do know that there was recently a change in the governance structure of the trust. Previously, they were only allowed to access the they weren't allowed to access the principal that was placed into mm-hmm. the trust. They were only allowed to access like the dividends that accrued mm-hmm. from from the trust funds. But the local government advocated in U.S. Congress for them to be able to access the full principle that was originally endowed. Mm-hmm. And I believe that now the, the people of Bikini have access to the full amount of funding that was set aside for the survivors. Um, and are it's at their discretion, essentially, to use the funding as they see fit. Oh, okay. So they're outside of the compact, there was additional arrangements made mm. for bikinis survivors specifically Mm -hmm. i should probably continue going through the timeline so people don't get confused so the nuclear testing began 1946 and then in 1948 they moved a lot of people to kili island is that how you pronounce it Mm -hmm. and this is like the complete opposite end um and this is like a tiny if you look at on a look at it on a map it's just like a tiny place that is highly susceptible to climate change um so at least for me that was an interesting kind of as we're listening to the consequences of history like, oh, we're going to move these people here. And then this is the single worst place where you could have moved them. Mm-hmm. And then in 1979, the islands became self-governing after the U.S.-German-Japanese rule. That's the end of... Oh, and then after that, the Compact of Free Association, which I just briefly mentioned. Um, as far as I understand, it basically gives the Marshallese people free ability to move to the U.S. Is it only the U.S.? Yes. Okay, yeah. So free ability to move without a visa and work, I think. You want to add to that? Yeah, the the compact is with three countries, um, the Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, and the Marshall Islands. Each of the three negotiated a particular set of terms under the compact, and all three of them are undergoing the same renewal process in the year 2023 when the current terms expire. So uh, I believe it's like a much more expansive conversation that's taking place across the Pacific with these three nations and the United States. But under the compact, essentially, the United States is able to maintain full military supervision of these three independent nations who are all UN-recognized nation-states. But in exchange for ceding military sovereignty to the United States, their citizens are granted the freedom to to live and to work in the United States at will under a very particular residency status that doesn't grant them any other additional rights other than the right to live and work, essentially. 
and and in also in exchange the those three nations receive a nominal amount of aid annually and what so i guess it is going to end this current agreement is going to end in 2023 and then you can renew it what are do you know anything about like the status of that like do you think it's going to be renewed or is it kind of up in the air given yeah the this process it's unfolding in a really interesting way at this moment in time as it relates to the expansion and projection of Chinese power throughout oh, okay. the Pacific. This it has a lot more history than I'm familiar with, but essentially Taiwan mm-hmm. represents a very strategic interest to mainland China, and there are only a select number of nations around the world that recognize the independent autonomy of Taiwan as a nation. The majority of those nations that recognize Taiwan are small island states like the Marshall Islands. Uh, Recently, as China has sought to expand its and and project its power throughout the Pacific to uh, maintain control over shipping lanes and project its military power. It has sought to curry favor with these small island states that recognize Taiwan's independence. There have been a number of nations just this year that switched their allegiance from recognizing Taiwan's independence to recognizing mainland China's control over Taiwan. And that has that has kind of ruptured a lot of the relations that exist between the Pacific and Taiwan and China. The Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, and RMI to this day all continue to recognize the independence of Taiwan, but with the compact expire set to expire in 2023 China is seeking to expand and exert their influence over these three compact states in order to perhaps convince them to shift their alignment from a compact state in free association with the United States to being an association with China uh, so would the result be that both the US and China have an agreement or it's just that only one of them from what I understand, that China or the United States okay. would maintain this kind of relationship, but it, it would have to be either or. And I guess, yeah, so that's just going to be kind of a deal in terms of like, who's going to give me a better deal for... For the Marshallese people. Yeah, for the Marshallese people. And then from the other side, it's going to be like a military standpoint, like, do I need this or not? Exactly. Um, and when you were talking about the China trying to get these island states to switch sides in terms of the Taiwan situation... What impact does that have? Is that it's not like the sovereignty of Taiwan is based entirely on like voting, right? right. So, what is the incentive uh, there? So, the incentive is that Taiwan gives a lot of aid to the Marshall Islands today. Mm-hmm. I found it fascinating to be there and to see the tangible manifestations of Taiwan Taiwanese aid in the Marshall Islands. The garbage trucks have Taiwanese flags on them. The light posts have Taiwanese flags on them. Garbage cans. Entire schools are donated and supported by the Taiwanese government. So you can see a very like clear connection and alignment with Taiwan. And also, Taiwanese families have a significant presence in the Marshall Islands. There are many families who are of like mixed Taiwanese Marshallese ancestry, um, and many like local businesses are owned by Taiwanese families. So I think switching that allegiance would have a very like tangible impact on day-to-day life as it relates to like aid that the Marshallese people rely upon 
but also the kinds of like familial connections that already exist. Mm -hmm. To leave China aside for a moment, to finish up kind of the timeline, there are about 60,000 Marshallese people total. It's not a lot, right? And then Mm -hmm. um, approximately a third of them live in the United States. And oddly enough, and probably you can speak to this because you know a little bit more about migration, but a lot of them live in Arkansas. Yeah. Speak to that a little bit. I can really quickly. uh, From what I understand, uh, Marshallese man or family first moved to Arkansas in the 90s to work at the Tyson Chicken Factory. Mm, Yeah, I saw Uh, the video. Yes. So, and following that, it was essentially like textbook chain migration. Mm -hmm. More Marshallese families started moving once someone else had put their roots down in Arkansas. And now you have essentially a third of Marshallese people or slightly less than a third of Marshallese people living in this Midwestern state. Yeah, I guess that is a very, very long explanation of the history and kind of circumstances facing the Marshall Islands. Um, I just want to kind of turn it now back to like what you did in your project on a day to day. Yeah. Back to the yeah, single experience, single lived experience. Sure. So I was working with the um, UN Migration Agency. It's called the International Organization for Migration, IOM. And I was helping to lead a number of different projects when I was there, all somewhat related to my initial proposal, but not directly building on the project that I had initially set out to to complete through the funding that I received. But when, when I first got to the Marshall Islands, I was essentially like treading water, trying to find organizations that I could... No pun intended. <laughs> none at all. That I could work with because I didn't know anyone in the Marshall Islands. I had never been there. I didn't know anyone who was from there. So I, I knew that I was going to need connections in the Marshall Islands to be able to do any work that was tangible and substantive. So I ended up working with the International Organization for Migration, helping them with a couple of different projects. The first was a project in which I was conducting interviews with young Marshallese people between the ages of like 18 to 25, who had recently moved back to the Marshall Islands after living abroad. Some of them were born outside of the Marshall Islands. Some of them had gone abroad to study. Some of them had gone abroad with their families when they were young children. But all of them shared this collective experience of returning. Mm -hmm. Um, And we wanted to tease apart the experience of returning and challenge the notion that the Marshallese are people in exodus because this statistic of one third of the Marshall Islands, you know, having left is very jarring. And and in some ways, it is quite dramatic. And we wanted to expose and surface other narratives that show that people aren't merely leaving. It's not unilateral flow of migration. People are also returning. And in particular, young people are making the choice to return to their cultural homeland in a very conscious and deliberate way because they feel such a strong sense of connection and motivation to give back and fight while they can. So that was one of the projects. Uh, I was also helping to organize a film festival that featured movies and stories of migration from in and beyond the Pacific. Uh, That was like a two-week festival that took place towards the end of my three months there. And then I was also helping to organize um, some like social media campaigns in partnership with this organization called the Pacific Community around Human Rights Day in the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. Going back to the project on shifting the narrative of 
Marshallese people leaving the islands to coming back. Yeah, I'm really interested in that, especially because, and maybe this is not a spoiler, but we will have an episode on Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, the situation in some people's view, I guess, is that the situation of protest isn't actually going to result in change, like ultimate change in the end. We're going to lose in the end, but we still want to fight for our values as a younger generation. You know, like we want history to remember that we are protesting now. Yes. Do you see kind of any resonance there with the Marshallese people? Because for me, it seems like, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to go back home and, you know, to your culture, but at the same time, like it's only a one lifetime thing as in it's not going to be like a multi-generational um, survival after that so mm-hmm. yeah you wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit yeah uh, for the most part their motivations for returning weren't necessarily linked to climate change and i mean it's not monolithic the young people that i interviewed had very different perspectives on the impacts of climate change on how it was going to affect their culture and their ability to maintain a home in the Marshall Islands. So I got a lot of different perspectives from the young people that I spoke with. I sense that it's less of a feeling of wanting to fight while we still can Mm. and more a deep sense of wanting to contribute the particular sets of skills and experiences and knowledge that they have had the privilege of acquiring by virtue of having lived or studied abroad and returning that to the Marshall Islands. We're children of immigrants. Mm. Brain drain is a very real challenge for nations that experience a lot of migration, in particular out-migration of highly qualified and skilled individuals. So seeing the commitment of young people who are highly skilled, who could go work in, in other places and, and potentially earn a lot more money, Mm. make the conscious decision to return to the Marshall Islands because they know that there are particular sets of skills that they possess that many Marshallese people don't possess and that they know they can contribute to their home is is inspiring. And, and I think it's very unique to the Marshall Islands in that way. And how do you kind of see the role of family in returning back to the Marshall Islands to pay back what you've gained from your culture like and what kind of narratives of family separation have you kind of heard throughout that project a lot so many different experiences with family separation some people moved abroad with their families when they were young you'll find that every single person in the marshall islands has family that lives abroad so in that sense every single family is separated in some respects mm-hmm. and that's like very common for, sorry to uh, butt in, but very common for like most island states, I think. Is that true? Uh, in particular, the compact states, uh-huh. because they oh, have yeah. mm-hmm. such uh, such a freedom to migrate at will. It's it, they're, they're like essentially no barriers to them migrating to the United States other than being able to afford the plane ticket to get there. So in the Marshall Islands, it's a particularly acute sense of separation between families that are living in the Marshall Islands still and families that are living abroad. Um, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's also this sense of separation between the families that are living on the outer islands and the families that are living in the economic centers of Ibai and Majuro. So those are the two main cities in the Marshall Islands. That's where the two international airports are. So if your family is from a different atoll and you are currently living in Majuro, then in a way your family is separated as well. So um, you have a lot of families who move abroad for a number of different purposes, in particular related to 
education, job opportunities, and healthcare um, are the three main drivers of out-migration. And um, many Marshallese people are now being born abroad, and some are choosing to return to the Marshall Islands to rekindle a sense of connection with the home that they've always had but have never visited. A lot of young people in the Marshall Islands are choosing to go to study abroad because they know that they're going to receive a higher quality of education than they would be able to receive in the Marshall Islands. So some are going abroad for for high school, some are going abroad for university, and many of them are choosing to return to the Marshall Islands. And then you have Marshallese people who, who were born abroad in places like Arkansas, Washington, Seattle, and who are now as adults, young adults, making the decision to return to the Marshall Islands. Often I found that their family isn't accompanying them. So in a way, they're, they're becoming further separated from at least their nuclear families. All Marshallese people still have an extended family that they can return to um, and that will welcome them back with open arms. But um, many of them have the experience of leaving behind family members in the United States to return to the Marshall Islands. Mm. What is the role of family in Marshallese culture? Like, I mean, I've read a little bit about how it's so important. It's important in many cultures, but it seems like it's not only particularly strong in the Marshallese culture, but also it's tied very much to the islands. And we mentioned this in the very beginning, but I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. Family is everything to the Marshallese people. I really can't overstate that enough. Your family really can shape your life outcomes in very different ways than I'm that I'm accustomed to. And it's very much related to the a system of land tenure in the Marshall Islands. Marshallese people have a very, very intimate and deep sense of connection to the land, in particular because of the way land is inherited through generations of Marshallese people, and it's passed matrilineally, and that's also related to one's joey. So when I'm saying that people have like ancestral homelands, it's not like a nebulous, intangible sense Uh of connection to one's nationality or to one's culture. It's a very physical sense of connection to a particular place. And often that's their home island where their family originates from and where their joey can be traced back to. So everyone has this very deep sense of connection to the land, which is then related to their sense of connection to their larger clan that all claims some some sense of connection to their land. I mean, everything in Marshallese culture is like is oriented around one's family. Families live together generationally in in like compounds, if you will. People's position within society is very much connected to the family that they come from and whether or not that family is a large landowner. Um, There are particular last names that are connected to very powerful families, dynasties of Marshallese people who are large landowners and who hold high up positions within ministries and within businesses in the Marshall Islands. And just having a particular last name can open up doors for you as a Marshallese person. And as you were kind of getting these stories for your project, did you kind of, like, what was, I don't know, what are some examples of perspectives that people had in terms of how they see the future of Marshallese culture existing without land? (laughs) 
Like, did anybody kind of talk about that or is that kind of taboo or... I mean, and just just random aside, as I was reading about the Marshall Islands, I kind of thought about my time in Korea where I was asking some of my co-teachers while, while I was teaching in Korea during the whole rise... Well, still continuing, but especially rising tensions with North Korea at that time. And I kind of asked around my co-teachers, like, aren't you worried? Like, what are you going to do about it? And a lot of them just didn't really want to think about it or talk about it because it's just... I mean, if it happens, what can I do about it? Nothing. And it's just going to stress me out. So, yeah. Anyway, to tie it back to the Marshall Islands, um, what kinds of on-the-ground opinions did you get or perspectives? Some very frank perspectives from from some of the young people that I spoke with. Like I said, it's it's not really like monolithic. A lot of people are more acquainted with climate science than other people are. And those people tend to have very honest outlooks at the future inhabitability of the Marshall Islands. And and they are very much aware that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when they will no longer be able to call the Marshall Islands their, their physical home and they will be forced, forcibly displaced and we'll have to make a new family, a new sense of connection, a new home somewhere else. And to be honest, that they they're they're very angry at a situation in which they had very little control over, but is a destiny that they are at this point inextricably bound to. Um, there's just so little self determination in future migration decisions. It seems like, and many of them, I feel rightfully angry about the kind of lack of agency that they have over having to leave their home. In a way, it's going to be voluntary and that, I mean, they're going to voluntarily make the decision to leave at some point in time, but in so many ways, it's completely involuntary. And it's a set of circumstances that the Marshallese people, much like the history of nuclear testing, had very little say in and and are, are deeply impacted by, unduly so. Other young people, they honestly, they, they haven't reflected a great deal about what the what the future looks like for them and for their families. They're young, they're focused on being young yeah. and doing things that young people do mm-hmm. and and are very in a way optimistic. One popular refrain is that we are not drowning, we are fighting. Mm-hmm. And and I found a lot of hope in that kind of belief and optimism. Part of me was torn by hearing science that's constantly evolving and the projections becoming more dire day by day for places like the Marshall Islands, but then physically being there. And I mean, as it occurs with climate change, it's not a day by day change. It's it's very much a long term set of changes that are that will take place and unfold. And on a day to day, you can't really sense the impacts of climate change. And in a way, maybe it's it's a way to like insulate yourself uh, from the long term implications by taking solace in the fact that on a day to day life is in some ways very much similar to as it always has been. And I think a lot of people young, a lot of young people in particular hold on to the fact that like, life has continued for the Marshallese people, despite the fact that they have this tragic history, and it will continue to to go on. And I mean, perhaps there are going to be these impacts um, down the line. But today, now, we're continuing to live our lives as we always have. Mm, a very interesting I was going to ask you a little bit about how I mean in the video that I watched like a short documentary, um, it shows a couple of Marshallese people in Arkansas doing like a beauty pageant or some kind of you know way of preserving their culture and I kind of thought about that in terms of like how would I preserve Koreanness or any kind of other 
um, ethnicity-ness. And as I was growing up, I guess I could have done these, you know, Korean culture nights, I guess, but like that isn't representative of what Korean identity is now as like a immigrant generation, right? Similar to the Marshallese, like I was watching that and I was thinking it's really great that they're preparing to preserve their culture in this way. But at the same time, it's not like the here and now culture is not the same as the idealized like i don't know compact version that i can put inside this Mm. beauty pageant but at the same time there's no real way to preserve your culture that's constantly evolving and also how do you really i mean as you're saying all of this like how do you prepare for that you know like you can't really prepare you just kind of have to live it and then it just becomes what it becomes i guess Um, yeah did you see anything preparation wise or is it just kind of yeah I, i from what i understand in recent years there's been a resurgence of uh like traditional culture in the Marshall Islands, they refer to their culture as Monit, M-A-N-I-T. And when I was there, we actually celebrated Monit Day. Um, it was basically like a week-long celebration of Marshallese culture. And I think there there has been this kind of like revitalization effort taking place within the newest generation of Marshallese people with like kind of with a lens on the vulnerability of their culture in the long term. Young people are in many ways like the champions of Marshallese culture today. They're the ones you see dancing. They're the ones who are learning these traditional forms of handicraft and weaving. They have this interest in learning how to use traditional sailing and navigation techniques. As you saw, like the kind of beauty pageant that was taking place in Arkansas that also mirrored kind of the the beauty pageant that was actually taking place in the Marshall Islands when I was there, the first ever Miss Marshall Islands competition. Uh, so you, you do definitely see today a very tangible sense of like revitalization when it comes to not just like maintaining a sense of connection to traditional culture, but also like resurfacing aspects of culture that might have been lost. Stories that might have been lost, like ways of life that might have been lost, cooking. It's all alive to this day and i and i found that like young people are the ones who are most interested in maintaining that sense of 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 their culture Mm. before wrapping up i just wanted to ask one question about that and we talk about this in our pilot episode um but it's really interesting how younger people are the ones who are revitalizing or are reaching back for this culture you would think that it would be older people who have grown up and are more invested in our I don't know, in some ways, as you, as you mentioned before, younger people are busy being young. Like mm. we don't really think about tradition or longevity or, you know, these kinds of questions. So, and I don't have an answer to this, but I was just curious if you had any idea about why do you think young people are the ones these days who are stepping up for climate change, who are reaching back for cultural, like authenticity or preservation. And if you don't have an idea, it's okay. Cause it's not a <laughs> yeah. easy for, question. For the Marshallese, it, it does seem to have to do with the divides that separate Marshallese people in the United States and Marshallese people in the Marshall Islands. From what I understand, a lot of the Marshallese people who live in the United States, they become westernized, as you can believe. I mean, Um, like us. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And when Marshallese people in the Marshall Islands talk about their family in the states you you can hear like how sad they are that they like lose this sense of connection to their food and to their songs to their traditional handicraft culture and i think for young people in particular they are fully aware that at least the young people that i spoke with 
many of them seem to be fully aware that there is kind of a expiration date on their ability to stay in the Marshall Islands. And I feel like they're trying to cultivate this sense of connection to their culture while they're able to do so. It does seem like there's a sense of urgency Mm-hmm. to revitalize what they can and build these traditions for themselves and for their families while they have the ability to do so, like while older generations are still around, while they're still able to learn these stories, learn these songs, learn these dances, because they know that it's it's not forever. And because they see how easy it is to lose that once you're in the United States and you no longer have that physical sense of connection to the Marshall Islands. So knowing that it, it, it can be lost so like subconsciously, I think at least the young people in the Marshalls who are still there and who still have the ability to to learn and to invest and cultivate their culture, they're, they're making the conscious effort to do so. Mm-hmm. As I'm thinking about that, that makes me pretty optimistic in many ways because I feel like when we were, I don't know if this is true for you, but at least when I was younger, like reaching back for your culture and trying to preserve this diversity factor that was not I don't know not acceptable I guess like it was more more often than not people conformed to quote-unquote American white culture I guess it's like I didn't really want to at least for me and also I mentioned this again in the pilot episode about my experience like going to Korea and thinking about cultural identity growing up for me it was not as easy to search for that but now it seems like it's a lot more acceptable lots of people are doing that I don't know what do you think about that yeah I mean in many ways for for immigrant families it's a survival mechanism yeah (laughs) you blend in you get by you you just put your head down and you try to teach your kids English so that they don't have an accent. So mm. if they grow up, they can get a job and you give them an American name so that no one discriminates against them when they see their resume. Mm. You do what you can to, yeah. for, to, to set your children up for success as an immigrant parent. And now we're shouldered with the burden of trying to find a sense of connection that in some ways like we were deprived of did you watch that hassan minaj thing that went viral oh it's uh yeah it's just a quick you can look it up on youtube or something but it's basically he's on ellen and then ellen's like hello hassan minaj and he's like that's not how you say my name and it's just kind of this awkward like he's coaching her how to say his name uh-huh. um and then later i think on the patriot act his show on netflix he kind of talks about how i mean my parents came here oh he talks about how his dad on the way back from ellen he's like you're so stupid. Like you had five minutes on Ellen. You spent three minutes correcting her about your name. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Um, And he kind of says like, yeah, but I mean, I'm not trying to just survive. Like I'm trying to live, you know, Mm. like I'm trying to live now. So yeah, definitely check that out. It's pretty short and um, impactful, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I thought about. And yeah, I mean, I guess it just makes me happy that it's acceptable and popular now to do this kind of preservation and being different is not bad anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's all. And then we do face like the resurgence of the opposite side, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but I think in general, it's a lot more hopeful than before. And better to have it out than not out at all. Right? So, yeah. Okay. Well, and then I guess the last kind of question what, that I had, short two questions was, the first one was, how did you kind of change while you were in the Marshall Islands? Just you personally, nothing about these larger life questions. <laughs> they can tie into it, but yeah, just kind of how did you grow during that time? Being on a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean has many, many challenges. I found myself very isolated. I found myself very lonely. And this strange sense of claustrophobia in being so far removed from everyone and everything that I know and being incapable of removing myself from that context because there was really no, there was no way for me to leave easily. 
it would have been very expensive to take a, a week-long trip back home because I missed my family and, and wanted to have familiar things. So in some ways, it was a very trying time for me. But I think that also pushed me to develop relationships with people in ways that I wouldn't have been pushed to do otherwise. I find that I am very good at maintaining like surface level relationships with a lot of people because it's really easy to do so. And in the Marshall Islands, people want to make you family. And and this sense of warmth and generosity that I was exposed to like really challenged me to dig deeper into the relationships that I was establishing with locals in ways that I probably wouldn't have done so if I were in Sydney or Taipei or something where I have the ability to opt out of mm. of like social interactions. I didn't have the option. And so I, I was forced out of my comfort zone. And I know that's like really trite sounding, but it, it's it's just true. And it pushed me to to like really reflect on what what social relationships mean to me like both familial and otherwise and like how i can maintain a sense of connection to my family and to my friends when i'm not physically with them when the marshallese people are facing these same questions mm-hmm. um on a day-to-day basis both related and unrelated to to climate change Mm-hmm. I think that's really like important to share because I mean I also lived abroad, but most people who are living abroad or are pursuing these kinds of projects or pushing themselves out of their comfort zone, like just hearing that somebody else is also going through that, I think helps a lot because you're so out there by yourself in this strange place. And then the last question that we have generally for our podcast is, what do you think? is the most important thing that you want people, listeners, to remember or take away. And this is, at least for the Marshall Islands, we're in a unique situation where it is possible for us to do something because, you know, 2023 is soon. Um, Is there anything that we can do or people should know that they can do about the situation? Hmm. I continue to find myself deeply inspired by the Marshall Islands in terms of the kinds of the kinds of leadership positions that they take on on the like international scale in climate change dialogues president hilda heine is a force to be reckoned with and we just had cop 25 in uh, madrid and it was a disaster in many regards for in particular small island states who will suffer the worst impacts of climate change and the most immediate impacts of climate change and it's really disillusioning to see the world's superpowers and major economies completely abdicate responsibility for the kinds of actions um, and consequences that they force upon small islands like the Marshall Islands. But you continue to find Hilda and other Marshallese climate leaders speaking up and fighting and not acquiescing and Mm. not just giving up in the face of, of all that is down the line for them, they're fighting mm-hmm. and and they're leading in, in so many regards. And that kind of hope and, and spirit in the face of tragedy mm-hmm. is incredibly powerful. And I hope that anyone who's listening to this, mm-hmm. you know, takes five minutes to go learn about the Wikipedia. His- yeah, to go learn about this really I mean, this beautiful place with an incredible culture and powerful people who have survived so much and continue to 
thrive, not just survive, and and to do what you feel like you have the power to do to to support this movement because uh, you know the Marshall Islands, they're leaders when it comes to climate change, but but they can't do it alone. And people like me and you who have mm. the privilege of living here and being able to exert our influence at and beyond the ballot box, we have the obligation, I think, to do so, not only in our interests, but in the interests of people who have, who don't have the same privileges that we have. So reflecting on our kind of like positionality and just maintaining like a consciousness of how we are connected to mm-hmm. the Marshall Islands, like whether or not we choose to be aware of it, but we are connected really like intimately so to their mm-hmm. future and, and we have something to do about it. Mm. Yeah. And I think, as you said, above everything else, that's really important for us to remember is that, I mean, for me, like before this conversation, before you went to the Marshall Islands, I don't know anything about the Marshall Islands. So I think, yeah, as you said, just learning about the situation, learning about the people, hopefully. um, And that's why I was also really glad to do this after I started reading um, about the Marshall Islands is just for people to remember. Um, So thank you so much. That's kind of the end. Do you have anything else to add? No. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Divide Families podcast. As we listen to the sounds of these waves taken directly from the Marshall Islands, I'm just left with this feeling that we often think about waves as something that's very soothing and remind us of vacation, but in the case of the Marshall Islands, I feel like they take on a very different meaning as well. Uh, This sense of displacement and coming division and possible separation of family that might happen from climate change. So... Not to end on such a somber note, but please continue to follow our podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast and other platforms. And of course, special shout out to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music. Thank you.